This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Inglis sales graduates dominated the Group 1 scene right through the 2019-2020 season. They got away to a flying start when Samadout won the Wink Stakes, the first Group 1 of the season. Vow and Declare won the Melbourne Cup, Exceedance won the Coolmore Stud Stakes, Super Seth won the Caulfield Guineas, Natoya the Doncaster, Quick Thinker the Australian Derby, and Nature Strip the TJ Smith, just to name a few. In total, Australia's leading thoroughbred auctioneers provided 22 individual Group 1 winners. They had the biggest number of stakes winners who won the biggest number of races. Inglis sold the highest number of three-year-old Group 1 winning Colts and the highest number of stakes winning fillies and mares. Won't be long now and the Group 1 round starts all over again with the Wink Stakes at Randwick on August the 22nd. You can bet the English graduates will be right in the thick of the action again in the new racing season. The powerful Victorian riding ranks were enhanced even further in the month of May when accomplished jockey Michael Rodd made a snap decision to leave Singapore where racing was in an indefinite lockdown. Michael had been riding in Singapore for close to five years, winning 10 Group 1s and finishing among the top five jockeys in every season. We now know that racing will resume in Singapore with no crowds on July the 11th, but a couple of months ago, the immediate future of racing was up in the air, and Michael made the decision to return to Melbourne, where his reputation was well established until racing in Singapore was back on its feet. It's no exaggeration to say that Michael Rodd, at just 38 years of age, is among Australia's elite jockeys, with 1,535 career winners, including a very impressive 46 at Group 1 level, 34 in Australia, 10 in Singapore and 2 in New Zealand. He's won a Melbourne Cup, a Cox Plate and multiple derbies. It's an imposing CV for a jockey who started a builder's apprenticeship on the New South Wales Central Coast, which he quickly abandoned, before idling away much of his time on a surfboard. His small stature led him to a racing stable at Gosford where he took the first tentative steps on a career which would take him to racing's dizziest heights. Welcome to the podcast, Michael Rodd. Yeah, thank you for that, uh, John. It's a pleasure to be on, and um, it brings back memories of when I was an apprentice watching on uh, Inside Race. John Taps Inside Racing. Um, I learned a lot from watching you interview guests, both both jockeys and trainers, and uh, it's great to finally make it onto uh, your podcast. Anyway, good on you, Mike. It's a great pleasure to have you. Well, you landed back in Melbourne with a very impressive CV, but it hasn't been easy to re-establish. You tell me. It's tough time of year here, um, John. Yeah, look, it's obviously winter times when all the apprentices get a good kick along. So that's obviously take made things a bit more difficult, and also the lockdown in states and and obviously jockeys aren't travelling around as much. So ever all the all the boys are still here. They're not really taking holidays. They're riding through winter where they normally go to Queensland and all they you know all they're off on holidays. Like I said, so 
yeah, there's a there's a really good quality bunch of riders at the moment. I've got to start at the bottom again. You were quickly among the winners on the provincial circuit, but it was only last Saturday week when you landed your first city winner on the Lindsay Smith trained mystery shot. Now, Mike, you tell me that Lindsay is one of the very few prominent trainers who doesn't have a permanent stable rider. Yeah, that's right. Look, I think um, with his circumstances that he's just moved over from um, Western Australia, I think he's still establishing himself and he's slowly building up. But, yeah, I was fortunate enough to I – I got a leg up there through an owner, Brad Spicer, who's got a, quite a few horses with Lindsay and then off the back of having success with Brad and on Lindsay's horses, Lindsay's starting to put me on some of the, his own horses. So um, it's a good little end because these opportunities, there, there aren't many around at the moment. Mm. When you made up your mind to return to Australia, was Melbourne your first choice because of the success you've had there? It it was, John. Look, Queensland's always been home to me. Um, I had I've, I've got fond memories up there, and my wife's from Queensland, mm. and it's probably where I might end up finishing my career. But yeah, Melbourne, you know, with the prize money and um, you know, with obviously the, the, the quality of racing that's here week in, week out was definitely where I had to come. Mm. Well, Singapore, as we mentioned, resumes on the 11th of July to empty houses, naturally, but hopefully it'll gather momentum quickly. Now, Mike, looking down the track a bit, do you intend to give Melbourne a really serious shot or are you looking at it as a temporary measure? No, look, I'm definitely committed. When I uh, first when I first returned, I wasn't quite sure where I where I was at and, and what was happening. Everything was sort of up in the air still with, with Singapore, um, and even with Australian racing and Touchwood, everything continues. But now I'm fully committed. Now, John, I've done a lot of work and mm. uh, been doing a lot of K's in the car, and um, I'm really getting the taste for it back back here in Melbourne. And um, mm. look, it's it's tough at the moment these winter months. It's tough for everyone for trainers and jockeys, uh, but I'm trying to set myself up to make sure I'm firing come, you know, come springtime, spring mm. carnival time. Mm. Well, you were born in Manly. You lived at Newport for a while early in life and then the family settled in beautiful Terrigal on the central coast. You've got an older brother, Dane, and a younger sister, Haley. Now, your dad, Tim, was an electrician by trade and he's been a TAFE instructor in that field for quite some time. I think he's still involved, isn't he? That's correct, yeah. Look, he's semi-retired, but he still does time up at TAFE, uh, just to earn a little bit of extra money on the side um, to fund his – he likes he likes his toys, his motorbikes and his surfboards. So, um, yeah, he's, uh, he's always got something going on. Mm. Although Dad has supported you every step of the way, you couldn't really call him a racing fanatic – but your mum, Wendy, on the other hand, is very interested and is a devoted Michael Rod fan. Yeah, she is, John. She loves it. Um, you know, she has a little shrine of me um, at her house. It, it gets my brother and sister or uh, they, they think it's quite funny. But, yeah, she's a very proud mum and she doesn't miss a race wherever I am. And um, uh, actually she sort of was one of the one of the sort of – someone that actually pushed me in this direction um mm. she knew someone that she someone that she was working with um was in racing and that's where sort of the bug started so um yeah it's been a it's been an amazing ride the building trade didn't appeal to young michael no it was tough john i think the the first 12 months of your building apprenticeship you're pretty much laboring and i was only uh 
I was very short and probably weighing about 45 kilos. So yeah, there was a lot of um, lot of issues on trying to trying to carry you know big bits of timber around or picking up a jackhammer that's pretty much the same weight as I and mm. and you know breaking up cement blocks. So yeah, the, the boys on the worksite used to have a bit of fun laughing at what I was trying to do, but uh, yeah, unfortunately mm. it wasn't for me, and yeah, I had to give it away. One thing that did appeal at that stage of your life was surfing with your mates in the sparkling waters off Terrigal. Yeah, I've grown up a surfer my whole life, uh, John, so, you know, for coming from Newport and then up to Terrigal, and uh, yeah, I was very fortunate. I had a great upbringing, and, and, you know, I was always in the, if I wasn't at school, I was out surfing. It was pretty much how it was, and mm. there was a fair bit of school missed because of the waves, so um, yeah, I was, I found my found my way back to surfing in, after my attempt at being a uh, builder, but uh, Dad told me it was time I had to try and find something else. I couldn't st- <laughs> to stop bludging off him and Mum. And uh, <laughs> fortunate enough, I um, I had, yeah, like I said, there was a few people about that were already whispering that I should try being a jockey. They were in the industry. And, mm. yeah, I went, uh, I went to Kerry Walker's stables at Avoca, mm-hmm. um, and they had stables. They, they'd take their horses to Gosford each morning, and mm. that's where it all began. Right. Yeah, Kerry had been at Rose Hill, hadn't he? Then he moved to Gosford and I think he finished up at Hawkesbury later. That's correct. Yeah, look, Kerry was a very good horseman and a, a great trainer with a lot of success and um, it was great to kick off with him and uh, and, and their owners there, uh, mm. the Moons up at Avoca. And that got me going. They educated me <clears throat> with, um, you know, working with horses on the ground and then got me riding the, the stable mm. pony. Well, it was suggested that you should look at a position in a metropolitan stable where opportunities would be much more plentiful. And a jockey called Brad Parnell came into the equation around this time. How did that work? Yeah, he was riding work at Gosford and he sort of identified me that obviously saw I had some sort of talent and, and wanted to, to really give, you know, being a being a jockey a good go so he suggested if I wanted to if I wanted to make it I had to sort of leave Gosford and and go to Sydney to a bigger stable and where I'd be riding more work and be exposed to obviously a better quality of jockey each Mm. morning at track work and a better quality horse so uh yeah I had to make that big call and and go from um yeah from living home and moving to the stables which was uh very very daunting yep the Brian Guy stables at Rose Hill and it was Brian who supplied your first ride, 5th of January 2000 at Gosford on a very well-bred filly called Tornado Lash. And you tell me you were as nervous as a kitten. Yeah, oh, it was crazy, John. Um, obviously, back then, um, yeah, I, I think I got my licence after about my 10th ba- barrier trial. Like, it was all happened very, very quickly. Uh, and then I was at, found myself, obviously, at the races having my first ride. And, yeah, getting legged aboard um, Tornado Lass, it was very weird, you know, with all your new uh, race gear, with mm-hmm. your saddle and the small irons and your silks. Everything was very slippery and mm-hmm. very foreign. Um, and it took me a while to get used to all of that. Um, yeah, I... I didn't hit my straps for quite a while as an apprentice. You ran second in that race, though. Yeah, I did. Look, through no help of mine. Uh, luckily, <laughs> the horse knew knew that to, to keep turning right and uh, where to go. But I, I, I was not a help at all. But uh, I was very fortunate because I, I had such a great apprenticeship. But having a great master like Brian Guy, mm. he put me on the right horses to to, to slowly um, mm. educate me and to get my my conf- my confidence up. Yep. Six months later, Brian took a small team to the Grafton July Carnival, including 
that little mare Tornado Lash, and he took young Michael Rod along to ride her again at Grafton. Special day. Very special day, John. Yeah, obviously, I'll never forget that day. Um, like a lot of other jockeys out there that can I know what I'm talking about. It's um, It all happened very quickly, but I can still recall it all. And uh, again, I think I sat three deep um, just outside the speed. Didn't really help it too much, but guided her around and got me going anyway. And that's so so important to get that first win out of the way. It just eases, out, eases your tensions and gives you a bit of confidence and a way you can go. At the time you joined Brian Guy, he already had plans afoot to move to the Gold Coast. In fact, he may have already set up a stable there run by his son Daniel and a foreman. Now, this is how you got to Queensland in the first place. That's correct, John. I was so lucky that I had that option. Sydney was just too tough, especially being a very green and raw apprentice like myself with not much experience. So the Gold Coast was an amazing opportunity for me and um yeah we went up there and most horses that were in the stable were ex-sydney horses so they their form was very strong going to the gold coast and um that's where i really learned my craft there at um at the gold coast of just steering them around and getting my confidence up and then um a lot of the horses would just come and win straight away at the gold coast and yeah it was uh i had a very good apprenticeship and um you know i have to thank brian guy and, and his family for that well, I'll say it was a good apprenticeship. You won three Queensland apprentices' titles. Yeah, that's right, John. It was a bit of a whirlwind. It sort of um, I went from not really riding much at all to getting my first winner um, at Grafton, and then yeah, things just really took off very quickly for me. And um, yeah, I outrode my claim quite quickly in the, the bush and provincials, and then found myself in town. And um, yeah, like I said, I had great support from Brian, and then. Mm-hmm. Obviously, success breeds success, John, and I had all the, the the bigger stables then putting me on as well. So, yeah, it was a great apprenticeship. And like I said, I'm very fortunate that I had a great boss that uh, that supported me, that worked me quite hard, but was pretty fair. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to find someone like that. He treated me like a son, and mm-hmm. um, I'm very thankful. The first of your 46 Group 1 wins came along when – a visiting New Zealand trainer, Murray Baker, turned up in Queensland with a good staying mare called Prize Gem. Now, he put you on Prize Gem in her first Australian start in the Prime Minister's Cup on the Gold Coast. Were you surprised to land such a quality ride at that stage of your career? Yeah, I was, John. Look, the, the reason why I picked the ride up was I was riding a lot of winners for John Wallace at the time at the Gold Coast and Murray Baker was staying at his stables and the, she only had a lightweight for the Prime Minister's Cup and John John recommended me to, to steer her around and, yeah, that was, a, that was a start of something really big, not only the connection with Murray Baker and obviously Prize Gem but just with Kiwis in general. But, yeah, she was, uh, she was a tiny little thing. She would have been 14 hands and they flew her over the two days before and she didn't eat the whole way or didn't eat or drink and um, I didn't find this out till after the race that uh, – yeah, how, how, how poorly she'd done, but she still came out and won very comfortably. The Prime Minister's Cup, you rode her that day, of course. Then Grant Cooksley, for some reason, got on her uh, at a following start in the PJ O'Shea Stakes, in which she ran third. But you were back on in the Brisbane Cup, which was still over 3,200 metres at that time and was still a Group 1. That's all changed now. 
Yeah, it has changed. Wow, that's um, that's going back a long way, John. But yeah, so Grant Cooksey filled in in the PJ Stakes. I was suspended, and fortunate enough, I think she had a lightweight again in the Brisbane Cup. So I picked the ride up there, and uh, mm. yeah, that was a magic day. I, I won actually won earlier stakes race for Brian um, on a horse for him, a sprinter, which escapes me at the moment. But then, mm. obviously, to come out and win the Brisbane Cup, and uh, yeah, I'll never forget it coming down the straight the first time i hadn't ridden in many 30 200 meter races so mm. i didn't have a lot of experience over the, that distance and um i remember coming down the straight and around near the mile and the pace had slackened up i had Corey brown outside me and you could see i was in a lot of trouble trying to hold it because the pace had slackened and mm. i just remember him saying just hold on jock they'll quicken up soon just stay in there because he could see i wanted to edge away from the fence and try and get going but Thankfully, I, I listened to Corey and, um, and yes, yeah, stay, stayed on the fence and got a miracle miracle run late to claim, mm. yeah, my first first group one win. Mm. So when they quickened, she settled a bit, did she? Then she, yeah, the, the pace was on and off, sort of on and off the whole way around. And um, like I said, my experience over 3,200 metres was, I, that could have even been one of my first rides over the distance, but mm. uh yeah, thankfully I was boxed away and I uh, couldn't go anywhere to to sort of go too early. But uh, yeah, that was amazing. Mm. Mike, we'll just pause to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with you in just a moment. The Clarence River Jockey Club proudly presents its historic July double, the Ramoni Handicap on Wednesday, July the 8th and the Grafton Cup on Thursday, July 9th on one of Australia's best country racecourses. The 1,200 metre listed Ramoni, first run in 1910, will carry a purse of $200,000 and the same prize money will be available 2,350 metre Grafton Cup, which also had its beginnings in 1910. Traditionally, both races attract metropolitan standard fields. In an ordinary year, the two-day Grafton Festival would attract people from all over the nation. In its heyday, the Grafton Cup Carnival generated huge crowds and a Melbourne Cup atmosphere. In 1972, when Big Butch won the Cup, 102 bookmakers fielded on the day. I've known people who haven't missed a Grafton Cup Carnival in 30 or 40 years. There's something about the Jacaranda City, there's something about the atmosphere of the Grafton Racecourse, and there's something about the legend of the great Ramoni Handicap Grafton Cup Double. These two showcase days on the country calendar will be covered on Sky One, Sky Thoroughbred Central and Sky Sports Radio. Prize Gem spelled after the Brisbane Cup before resuming at home in New Zealand and you actually flew over and rode her in two runs at Hastings, an unplaced and a win in the Group 1, the Kelt Capital. Pretty important race over there. Yeah, that's right, John. I was obviously still an apprentice at the time and it was one of my first trips out of Australia to ride and, um, yeah, found myself at Hastings. Um, I remember getting the shock of my life when I arrived because I wasn't prepared for the cold weather and, there was snow on the, the mountains around there when I went and walked the track that morning. So, mm. um, <clears throat> yeah, but it was a memorable day. It was a big, <clears throat> excuse me, that's a big race over there in New Zealand at the time. Mm. And, uh, yeah, she got the she got the money. Now, you went to Melbourne with her after that for three runs. She was unplaced in the Caulfield Stakes, the Caulfield Cup and the Melbourne Cup. Uh, that same mare, Mike, went on to achieve great distinction as a broodmare. She became the mother 
of Nom de Jure, who went on to win an AJC derby and ran second in a Caulfield Cup. Yeah, <clears throat> she was. She's an, she has a very special part, uh, place in my heart, John, and um, she obviously got me to Melbourne where I was able to have my first rides in the Melbourne Cup and the, and the Caulfield Cup and have a taste of what it's like. And it was no pressure riding for for Murray and and for the for the owners. Um, they they knew that they were just there to go around. But yeah, she's been a fantastic broodmare, and it's great to see that uh, yeah her progeny live on. You wouldn't expect her to, to become a star brood mare, would you? You tell me she was tiny. That's exactly right. Yeah, she was mm. tiny, but what she put into her uh, progeny is that a big heart of hers. Mm. Now, tell me about this little trip to Hong Kong uh, between 2004 and 2006. How did that come up, Michael? Brian Guy didn't want you to go, did he? No. <clears throat> Brian, Brian obviously having a lot more experience than I did. Um, in racing, obviously, especially in Hong Kong. But I went over as, as an apprentice just to ride track work to get some experience because I won the the jockey the the apprentices premiership in Queensland. So part of my prize was to go up there and ride some work. And uh-huh. just before I left, Kim Kelly said, "I'll oh, bring your saddles along." There's a few jockeys suspended, and fortunately enough, I picked up quite a few rides and I rode my first winner at uh, Happy Valley for John Moore and um, mm. and uh, Stanley Ho, that very big owner up there, and. Mm. Then followed up the next Sunday on um, for a winner at Sha Tin. So I left there with a couple of winners from about 10 rides. And uh, when I returned home and my apprenticeship was just about to end, Mm. uh, Kim Kelly said, put your application in for next season. Mm. And I did through a bit of protest from Brian. Um, but I was then out of my time, and they—they, they, uh, I got my license up there, a 12-month license, mm. and uh, started in Hong Kong. So, yeah, it was a bit of a whirlwind arriving up there with very little experience of in not just in riding, but in life in general. And mm. I grew up very quickly up there, but I had a very good start. The first meeting of the year, I rode three winners for John Moore. So, mm. it was a it was a crazy beginning. The first few months were, were I was very busy, but then. Things started catching up with me, just my inexperience in, in managing myself through riding and also through my lifestyle and um, just being very immature. But like I said, it was a great opportunity and, and I came back a lot better rider. Like most jockeys do when they when they mm. travel, they always come back smarter. Mm. And strangely, Michael, you've never been back to Hong Kong since. I haven't, John. Look, the, just it, the opportunity hasn't really came up and then, I know how hard you have to work up there to get a little bit of success, let alone be consistently going all the time. And um, it's a tough, it's a tough school there. And the right, the the opportunity hasn't come to to go at the mm. at the right time. But um, it's always something there. I think every jockey, either they want to go there and ride, or the ones that have been there before, mm. would like to go back and test their skills against the best jo- best jockeys in the world from the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. Mm. It must have come as a very pleasant surprise when high-profile owner, breeder, punter, Lloyd Williams invited a very young Michael Rod to take up a retainer at Macedon Lodge. Yes, John. Look, I couldn't believe it when I got a message through that um, I actually spoke to Nick Williams. He phoned me. I was in, just came to Sydney from Queensland um, after my Hong Kong stint. And uh, couldn't believe it when I got a got a call from um, Nick to say that uh, they were interested in interviewing me for a, a, you know the, the the top job of 
their stable rider. I think Danny Nicklick was just coming to the end there. So, mm. yeah, I flew down the next day and had a meeting with Lloyd and Nick. And, um, yeah, then uh, I think a week later I packed my bags and I was coming down. It would have been just before the spring carnival was kicking off because mm. I ended up on uh, on efficient probably a month later in the in the bars. So it, it was, yeah, it was a crazy period um, for me and being so young mm. to ride for someone like Lloyd and, and to have that opportunity. Um, yeah, I'm very, very thankful. You were involved in an amazing piece of theatre before the 2007 Caulfield Cup. You'd been riding Maldivian. You'd won the Group 1 Yolumba Stakes on him two weeks earlier. He was backed off the map to win the Caulfield Cup. He drew barrier one. He got very upset when Eskimo Queen got down in the gates and another horse, in fact, the horse that won that cup, Master O'Reilly, started to play up. Next thing we know, I'll never forget watching this, Maldivian reared and sustained a nasty gash to the side of his neck. Mike, how did he do that? Yeah, he's, he's always been a, a – he, he's always had barrier issues from day one, and Julian Welsh had to re-educate him a couple of times for Mark to get him to get go back to the races, so – He's always been a hothead in the barriers, and unfortunately, where the start is at, on uh, uh, for the Caulfield Cup, it's right in front of the crowd, and he'd loaded early. He might have been like barrier five or six, and so he was standing in there for quite a while, and just the adrenaline was pumping through him, and the crowd was revving not just him up, most runners up, but like you said, with Eskimo Queen playing up also, so... Yeah, he couldn't stand it much longer and he just launched and he just went completely vertical and he's a massive horse. He was about 17 hands and, you know, like 550 kilos. He was a big animal and he put himself up into a really awkward position and unfortunately there was a new camera, um, piece of camera equipment up up in the barriers to get a view of the jockeys in the barriers and he actually nicked that with the, with the side of his neck and it just – it split him open up the side and uh, the blood came out thick and fast. Goodness me. Well, it was great theatre. It was a, a very <clears throat> tense few moments and we saw this amazing situation where the first and second favourites were both late scratchings, Maldivian and Eskimo Queen. And, Michael, it was said that the TAB all over Australia had to give back millions of dollars in bets yeah, look, his form leading into the Caulfield Cup was obviously very good. He was absolutely flying at the time, and then he only had a very light weight. Um, so, it, you know, and there wasn't a lot of speed. He was an on-pace runner. He was sort of that, not putting him in the same, um, you know, in the same realm as Might and Power, but a similar sort of horse. He liked to roll along and make his own luck in front, and that's what he was going to do that day. He was dropping, you know, a lot of weight, obviously, from coming from a weight trade race. To like carrying the fifty-two kilos, I think he had in that Melbourne Cup, uh, that Caulfield Cup. Sorry, but mm. it wasn't to be, John. This is racing, the highs and lows, and you can taste them all very quickly. But uh, he got his own back at twelve months later. Oh, he certainly did. Uh, Maldivian, Mark Kavanagh, trainer, and Michael <coughs> Rod, jockey, were more than compensated a year later when he led most of the way, didn't he, to win the WS Cox Plate. Yeah, that's right, John. It was uh, he was he was out of form leading into it, so it was a it was a no pressure ride for me. And um, but Mark had just tweaked a few things through the week with his gear and sharpened him up over the 
the, the hurdles. So, um, you know, he was a very good horse in front when he had the fence and he had an extremely good record around Mooney Valley for a big horse. And mm. I had to use him a fair bit for the first 400 metres. I really wanted to hold the lead and Nash pressured me quite heavily with um, with uh, Thessio. He also wanted to try and lead. So we we, mm. we, we um, paired out coming out of the straight the first time. But then um, once Nash realised that I was going to keep holding holding on, we couldn't keep cutting each other up, we then I was able to slacken off and when the second half of the race was ran at a very slow tempo and mm. he was able to really quicken off that turn and uh, he made it impossible for anything to come from behind and beat him. Mm. You also won a CF4 stakes on Maldivian. He was good for you, wasn't he? He was a, an amazing horse to me. It was such a beautiful animal. He's still uh, he's at Cav's farm now. I see pictures of him every now and then. He He's up there with all the yearlings, um, with all the colts in the – um, in, in his paddock, he's bossing him around and educating him. But, mm. yeah, he's a special horse to myself. And the owner, Joe, Joe Ricardo, um, he, he was an amazing – he's an amazing man. He was a very generous guy and he loved his racing also. He's, he's from WA and mm. he's, uh, he's had a lot of success with Mark. Um, unfortunately, he's a little bit cr- – he's crook at the moment. But, um, yeah, no, there's some really fond memories of that, of that era. You and Mark Kavanagh got some consolation during that spring carnival with a lovely mare called Divine Madonna. You won two Group 1s on her during the spring carnival of that year, the two-rack handicap and the Meyer Classic, and she came from way back in both of them. Yeah, she had a very unique racing pattern, John. She she had bad uh, bad joints in front, and so she took a while to warm up, so she'd always fall out of the barriers and She'd take probably 200 metres to get into any stride and you'd always find yourself back last on her. You just had to make sure you gave her room and she would come with this amazing run. Um, her sectionals are quite incredible. And, yeah, she was a game little thing. She was a she was a pain in the ass track work in the morning. Um, <laughs> she'd really, really test it, yeah, like like most of those those good mares, they, mm. um, they've got a bit of shit in them and she was definitely one of them, but <laughs> she was such a game, game horse. And, yeah, she she yeah, she was very good to me and um, mm. very good to the stable. Well, the Caulfield Cup drama paled into insignificance just over two weeks later when you got yourself on a wonderful stayer in the Melbourne Cup. Now, poor old Steve Arnold had ridden efficient in four lead-up races without success and he had first option on him for the Melbourne Cup, but he got off. He elected to ride a horse called Gaelic. Yeah, that's correct, John. Yeah, look, Gaelic and and Stephen Arnold had a very good relationship. Um, He'd won an Adelaide Cup and a Sydney Cup. Um, So I can see why he chose to go with Gaelic. And also Gaelic was probably carrying a kilo extra than uh, the 54 and a half that that Efficient was carrying in the Melbourne Cup. So it was probably a pretty easy decision for for Stephen to go that way. Unfortunately for Stephen, his horse was scratched, I think, cup morning. So he was Mm. left without a ride in the race altogether. Um, And, yeah, I was fortunate enough to find myself yeah, on a, back on Efficient pretty much 12 months later after the derby mm. um, to steer him around again. Yeah, well, you knew him well. You'd won the Amy Vars and the Victoria derby on Efficient a year earlier, and even though his form wasn't spectacular coming into the Melbourne Cup, you must have been pretty chuffed to get back on. Yeah, my confident levels were really high because I've had so much success on him, and I was speaking to John Sadler, 
about him probably the morning of the race and he just said don't worry he's going to run a huge race he really filled me with a lot of confidence and Lloyd didn't really tie me down to instructions he just said the only thing I want you to do is get him to the outside which was his normal racing pattern and Mm. yeah as things transpired John it, it just worked out perfectly for us. Now, you had a lovely run in the early stages of the race. In fact, for three quarters of the race, you were just a little worse than midfield, one off the fence. Coming to the 800, it appears watching the replay that you were anxious to get going, but your stable mate Zipping had something to say about that, and it might have been a blessing in the end. Yeah, Zipping's been a very good horse to me over the years, John. I've won a couple of Zipping classics on, on him, and he probably won me that Melbourne Cup that day, um, and Danny Nicolick. As as we, all the horses were making their run, they sort of start moving between the thousand, the eight hundred, or even earlier sometimes. And mm. I was sort of cluttered up and boxed away. And I tried to come out and go at the eight hundred meter mark, and Zipping and Danny came around me and put me back into a pocket. And they did me a favour because it just made me wait that little bit longer. And then I was able to come back out onto onto to Zipping's back, mm. and then actually track him into the race and. He brought me all the way into the straight, which I needed that piggyback, and then I was able to slide to the outside and and uh, set sail for home. And Michael, he let down, didn't he, like an A-grade sprinter? That, that's him. Any any race, any staying race, and that's what he has, this amazing turn of foot. He's definitely the best stayer I've ever ridden. And, Is he? Uh, yeah. That's what he, yeah, incredible, incredible. Uh, he, you know, he's a great stayer, but he had that turn of foot at the end of the the end of the race, which not many stayers do. They're normally a bit one-paced, but mm. he gave me that brilliant electric turn of foot to, to mow down um, to mow down Ollie and uh, and Green Moon on the on the line. Purple Moon. Purple Moon, sorry. Mm. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> so, now, no, incredible, John, yeah, to, 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 to draw level with Damien in a Melbourne Cup. Um, obviously, he's, you know, he's the champion jockey out he is, and to fight out, fight, yeah. it, fight it out, you know, Australia's biggest race was, mm. yeah, very surreal and... Uh, yeah, very memorable. Now, the efficient story after that was quite fascinating. He was transferred from Graham Rogerson, who had him at cup time, to John Sadler, who won a Group 1 Turnbull stakes with him, and then he sustained a tendon injury. And he didn't race again for two years, by which time Robert Hickmott was training for Lloyd Williams. Efficient had nine more starts without a win, but you tell me he should have won the 2012 Sydney Cup when he was an eight-year-old. He ran second to Niwot, and this was Michael Rod's first ride on the horse. This is incredible stuff for four and a half years. Yeah, John, oh, it would have been something if he'd won, and that's one of the victories that still hurts me to this day, um, mm. that he didn't get up and win. It would have been very special, but... He was so well managed by by Lloyd and and um, and everyone there at Macedon Lodge. Efficient. Um, he's had such a wonderful career, and that would have been a great way to go out to to win that Sydney Cup. But yeah, unfortunately, I got held up coming up the rise, and he had a top weight of probably fifty eight, and he what only had like fifty two. I think Dwayne Dunn was carrying that day. So um, yeah, it's definitely the one that got away. I would have really loved to win on that on not for myself, but for the horse. He deserves that next to his name, um, but. It wasn't to be. He had a fantastic career, career, and I still see him. I mean, I haven't seen him since I've been back from Singapore, but before I was going to Singapore, I was seeing him most carnivals because he's doing a lot of work with the, mm. the living legends. Lovely to see. Now, yes. Michael, the Mark Cavanagh trained Who Begot You 
is unquestionably one of the best horses you've ridden. He won 10 races with 10 seconds, four thirds, almost 3.2 million. You had 18 rides on the horse for four wins, including the Caulfield Guineas, but you ran second in a Victoria Derby and Underwood, a Doombin 10,000, and I think you were third on him in a Cox Plate. And you yeah, also that's... ran third in a Doncaster of 2009, and I probably shouldn't even bring that one up. <laughs> yeah, that's a painful one also. He went, he drew, I think he had the outside barrier that day, and his normal racing pattern was to go back to last and, um, you know, to go back a long way anyway, and he just didn't have any luck coming coming up the rise also. Um, I've had a few unluck, hard luck stories there at Randwick. But anyway, um, yeah, he yeah he went he went to, to the line under double under double wraps in the Doncaster that year, and yeah, it would have been nice to have won that for him. But uh, yeah, he was a great horse to me through my career, and really good for the for the Kavanagh stable, and and also he was the first horse that Lawrence Eels um, had as well. So he had a lot of luck early. Mm. <clears throat> now, Michael, to the big, powerful, strapping mare that you rate the best horse you've ever ridden, the massively talented but unsound Atlantic Jewel. She had only 11 starts before succumbing to a tendon injury. She won 10 of the 11 and was beaten by a slow pace in the other one. Now, yes. you rode her in nine of her lifetime starts. I think Damien and Steve Baster won minor races on her early in her career. Now, Mike, in your words, how do you describe this beast of a horse, Atlantic Jewel? She was electrifying, um, John. That, that's probably how you could explain her. And I think anyone that had anything to do with her or, um, you know, who saw her in the morning at track work would say the same thing. She was a big three-year-old filly when she won down at Geelong for Stephen Baster. And <clears throat> I remember the next start, we were going to Mooney Valley for an open three-year-old fillies race, maybe Cox Plate Day. and. Uh, she worked the Tuesday before, and Damien Oliver galloped, "Who be got you?" And I worked Atlantic Jewel, and she worked past "Who be got you?" Good. And he was going, he was going for the Cox Plate, and she was just going for a, um, a yeah, Phillies race. Phillies race. So yeah. this was the sort of horse she was. The morning that she broke down, unfortunately broke down. Um, she was again. No, I think she was galloping with a good sprinter of marks. Maybe uh, I'm just trying to. The name escapes me. It would have been a good sprinter, and she set off the the workhorse and drew level with him at the 400 and that's when she she bowed attended i felt her go underneath me but she still won the gallop she went across the line in front of the other horse so mm. yeah she was a remarkable horse mm. you won four group ones on atlantic jewel the caulfield stakes the memsey stakes the all aged and the thousand guineas and some of her winning margins were incredible she won a thousand guineas by three lengths the wakeful by seven and a Caulfield stakes by four. Yeah, well, against her own age and sex, she was unbeatable and she was that far, she was that much better than the other horses. It was actually a, it was an, it was a pleasure to go to the races and ride her because she just knew you just keep her out of trouble and it was a track gallop. So, um, yeah, that, they, that was fantastic. The Caulfield stakes was a very small field. I think it was a field of six and mm. um, she, she sat back and, and rattled home. Um, and that put her into Cox Plate favouritism. Um, but unfortunately, she went amiss, yeah. Yeah. 
She went to stud in the Northern Hemisphere. Her first foal was a winner, so was her second. In fact, that second one, Russian Warrior, uh, finished out of the money in the English Derby over the weekend, but he had been a winner, of course, prior to that. I believe she's got a couple of Galileos and she's back in Australia and without checking, I think I saw it somewhere, she was actually served by Justify last spring. Yeah, that's right, John. I, I probably saw a similar um, uh, similar uh, news story that, yeah, she's, mm. she's back in foal again. So, yeah, look, she's she's a she's going to be a great broodmare, and I saw her her son run overnight in the in the derby, and mm. it was won by a front runner. The derby it was it was a remarkable race, um, how 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 it transpired, and he never got into it. He was back sort of he was back midfield or just behind midfield, mm. following the favourite, and he never really got into the race. But it was it was, like I said, it was a remarkable race. But mm. no, she, yeah, she's up back in Australia, and yeah, still pumping out babies. Yeah. <laughs> I know you enjoyed your brief association with a horse called Spirit of Boom from the Tony Gollan stable. You rode him half a dozen times. You won a couple of Group 1s on him, a William Reed in Melbourne. He ran second in a Newmarket too with you on board and he won the 2014 Doombin 10,000 in a memorable finish when he beat his stable mate, Temple of Boom. Yeah, that's right, John. Those two horses were great for Tony Gollan. Um, it's being such a young trainer, having having two quality horses like that. And, yeah, it was special. I, I won Tony's first group one for him at Mooney Valley on Spirit of Boom. And then to go to Queensland, um, for, I'm not I don't, I'm not a Queenslander as I, I do cheer for the, the Blues and I'm born and bred in New South Wales, but I class myself part Queenslander because I, I started my apprenticeship up there. And to win a race like the Doombin 10,000, which is, a, you know, a race that I grew up watching as an apprentice and dreaming about just riding in it, um, to win that race was so special, to, and to do it with Tony was, yeah, was was really good. Mm. Tell you a nice filly you rode for Bart Cummings, Mike. Faint Perfume. Uh, you won a couple of Group Ones on Faint Perfume, including the Vinery Stud Stakes and the Crown Oaks at Flemington, and I think you ran second in an AJC Oaks too, didn't you? I did, John. Yeah, she was a she was a beautiful little filly. She was only small, but she was all heart. She's very similar to Prize Gem um, and similar racing pattern. She'd get back and rattle home, uh, and yeah, it was great to not only great to to win those races that you mentioned, but to to win those win them for Bart Cummings was just very special. And a man, a man of um, you know of what he's done as a trainer, and uh, yeah, it was uh, you know it was more it was more exciting winning him for Bart than anything else. Mm. You must have enjoyed Singapore racing very much indeed to stay for. Five full years, in which time you won 10 Group 1 races, including the very prestigious Singapore Gold Cup on a horse called Gilt Complex. That's a pretty big thing up there, isn't it? It is, John. Yeah, yeah, that was a special day. It was an amazing training performance by Cliff Brown. I did at that stage, I was sort of mainly riding for Cliff. Um, I was really enjoying my time up there and we had a great association, but Watching the way he trained that horse, the, the, the two weeks leading up to the race, um, I would go in every morning, and he was a he was a big horse, and he was a really good doer. So each day, um, you know, we'd be doing something different with him to get him to that race, and uh, yeah, it was a great result to, to win it. And um, yeah, Singapore was really good to me and my wife, John. We 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 went up there as uh, 
just ourselves, married married young couple, and came home with two kids. So um, mm-hmm. I've got fond memories of Queensland. Uh, sorry, of uh, of Singapore, and mm-hmm. uh, who knows, I might find my way back there one day to be riding in some of those bigger races, which would be really good. Was Debt Collector the best horse you rode up there? He was, John. Yeah, he he was horse of the year there a um, couple of times, and he yeah he was unbeatable there for probably a two year stint. Another horse very well managed by Cliff Brown. He was a horse that um he had a fair few issues um and yeah he he was it was a lot of stress whenever he was in work in the stables but uh race day he had that and he had the that funny racing pattern he'd just be out the back also mm. uh, but he would come with uh with a real strong run late and yeah, i think he holds a few records up there with um with uh last 800 meters and 600 meters sectionals he's not many could not many could come home like him mm. Your wife, Cara, and your two daughters are currently staying with Cara's parents in Rockhampton while you ply your trade in Victoria, waiting to see what's going to happen in Singapore. Now, Cara has obviously got her hands full, Michael, with Lila, who's four and a half, and Chloe, who is just eight months old. Cara's got the toughest job. She does, John. Yeah, obviously, I speak to her a couple of times every day, and there's FaceTiming, and it's that uh, all mothers know out there that uh, it, you know it's the, one of the toughest jobs going. That it's just that relentless um, that relentless routine, especially with a young one when you're feeding and sleeping. So mm-hmm. yeah, look, the girls are up there. I'm missing them dearly, and I can't wait to have them down here with me. But at the moment, the circumstances just won't allow it, and I'm not the mm-hmm. only one that's doing it tough without family. There's a lot of people out there, whether they're sportsmen or whether with their work um, they can't be with their family with these, you know, these unforeseen circumstances with the virus. But uh, it's uh, it's just where life's taken us at the moment. But, no, hopefully all this hard work will pay off and I'll be back with you soon. Well, Michael, here's a three-part question as we get towards terminating our interview. So, Melbourne, it sounds as though you're firmly entrenched there at least until the spring carnival comes around. Definitely, John. Do you have a job offer for me, do you? A <laughs> couple in the pipeline. I'll ring you later. <laughs> yeah. I'm not too good in – I've never driven a, a trotter. I'm not too good in the in the gig, mate, so I'll I teach you. I can help you there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> so you'll stay in Melbourne for the time being? Yeah, for sure. This is Yeah, this is going to be home and this is where I'm really focusing and, and working, putting all my energy and, uh, and I'm enjoying it, John. Look, when I first came back from Singapore – it was really tough the first couple of weeks, um, getting your weight down, coming back into this environment and riding every day. It was something that not just uh, I had to adapt to mentally but also physically. But my fitness is up, my weight's slowly coming down and, um, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Do you see yourself going back to Singapore someday? It, it, it would have to turn around, John. Unfortunately, at the moment, um, they're only returning to uh, very few meetings, um, but it will start to step up to, uh, as as we get going, as they get going up there. Um, so, look, you'd never say never, but at the moment my future's definitely here in Melbourne. Well, you let the cat out of the bag early in the interview when you said that Queensland is the place that will appeal in your twilight years as a jockey. Yeah, that's right, John. Look, Queensland's where it all began for me. I owe a lot to Queensland Racing and the Queensland racing industry up there for what they what it did for me and, and getting me going. I was very fortunate. Like I said, I I won a I won a 
um, I won a few premierships up there, and each year the um, the powers to be would send me away. One year I went to New Zealand, and that's where I made a great connection over there with with the, with the Kiwis. Another year I went to Dubai and mm. rode track work for a month for John Sadler. So, um, you know, and that was just you know that was all that just them Queensland trying to put me out there and educate me. And so mm. it would definitely be right of me to head back there towards the end there, back to the sunshine, John, and um, mm. not having to shiver and. Yeah, yeah play, play, you know, finish my career up there. You know, it's right on 20 years, Mike, since Tornado Lass won that race at Grafton to get you on your way as a professional jockey. Many fellow riders have touched your life over two decades, but there are two who inspired you greatly, one of them in Queensland, one of them in Victoria. Yeah, that's right, John. Look, I'm... I was very fortunate that Michael Carl was um, in the jockeys' room when I was up there as a kid. There was a lot of great jockeys there, Mike, Michael Pelling, Glenn Collis, um, mm. Scott Seymour. Mm. Uh, but Michael Carl was really uh, my guy. And, yeah, I used to, just to sit there and just watch everything he did. And he's the ultimate professional. He's an absolute gentleman, both on and off the horse. He's a mm. fierce competitor. But, um, you know, he's yeah, he was – for me, someone that I was lucky enough to look up to and, and had there as a role model, and I think a lot of he's still riding now and still doing such a great job. And mm. I think a lot of kids could um could couldn't find you know wouldn't <clears throat> would be would be a good idea to, to be following and, and watching what Michael does. Yeah, Mike, I, I'm not sure if you're aware he rode a treble yesterday at Eagle Farm. Uh, yeah, he's yeah he's amazing. <laughs> he's got his eye back in, and yeah. he's such a great rider. Beautiful hands and and such a lovely seat on the horse and. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not surprising, John. Yep, he's a champion. And Steve Arnold uh, was a very significant uh, in your time in Melbourne. Yeah, he's also just just one I watched. You know, just just one you watch around the jockeys' room, the way he sort of um, carried himself both on and off the course. Um, you know, an amazing human being um, and just a great jockey. You know, again, similar to Michael Carl. You know, they're the guys that I. I ride very similar to them, you know. I'm, I, we like to sort of settle our horses and let them finish. And these are the guys that I've watched. I remember watching Stephen as an apprentice when he was riding. When I was an apprentice, and he was riding in Adelaide and riding horses like Bomber Bill and those, you know, those good horses. And it was great to be able to ride ride next to him in Melbourne um, through the end of his career. Mm. Well, Mike, in closing our podcast interview, I'll do a little deal with you. <laughs> See what you think I'm of this. Is. I'll right. show you how to drive a pacer. If you'll show me how to ride a surfboard, <laughs> we have to do this, Tappy. Let's let's get this going. All right, you, you talk to the powers to be, and I'd love to get you on. A, we'll get you on a mail. I'm not going to put you on a shortboard. No, we'll get you on a mail, and we'll do it in summertime. And yeah, uh, yeah definitely do that. And then yeah, you, we can go and I'll get in the gig, mate. You'd have to put me on a manly ferry to stay safe. <laughs> Oh, it'd be fantastic. <laughs> okay, Mike. Been lovely to catch up. I know it's a tough grind down there uh, at the moment, as you've so um, so comprehensively explained, but you've got plenty of talent, mate. You've still got the fire in the belly and uh, there are winners around the corner. Yeah, thank you, John. No, I'll just keep working away and um, I'm sure things will come my way. So thanks for having me on. It's been yeah, an absolute pleasure and uh, yeah, I've enjoyed reminiscing with you. Good on you, Michael Rod, and this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. 
This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis.